So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here, we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabbousi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud, brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. I am your host, Arin Bahour, class of 2016, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Ahlan wa sahlan to another episode of our Pi series, a series featuring recent graduates and current MIT students who share with us their MIT journey. I am thrilled to introduce today's guest. She is one of the most impressive humans I've had the pleasure to meet at MIT. She graduated from MIT with a Bachelor of Science in Aerospace Engineering in 2018 and continued on to her master's degree and now is currently a PhD student in the same field, also at MIT. Her research made it onto Mars a few months ago, and we'll hear more about that. Yes, you heard that right. Her research is in space, quite literally. Without further ado, I am honored to welcome Maya Nasser. Maya, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Ali. It's, uh, it's, I'm really excited to be here and uh, to be part of this podcast. You guys have been doing a great job and, and gathering all of the alumni together. And uh... Thank you. We are lucky. We're definitely very lucky to have you as a guest. I don't even know where to begin. You have accomplished so much that a 30-minute episode is by no means enough to chat about everything. But since this is part of our Pi series, I want to start with your um, journey to MIT. So tell us where you're from and how you ended up at MIT as an undergrad. Yeah, of course. So um, I actually am from Lebanon. Um, I got to MIT in 2014 and I've been uh, here since then, basically a a lifer in Boston. Um, So I got to MIT through a program um, in Amity, in Lebanon called Competitive College Club. It's um, a part of a scholarship called Diana Kamal Scholarship Search Fund. Um, and, And I basically, when I was in high school, I didn't really know about processes of applying to the U.S. Um, it was not one of the options that any of the alumni in my school or any of the people around me have have done before. So I didn't really. I was. It was an overwhelming process. I didn't know where to really start to do that. And one day I was in school, just walking, and I saw a flyer of uh, of a program in Amidist, and it kind of had universities like Harvard, Harvard, and MIT, and all that. So it was very exciting for me to see. And I went back back home, and I was like, "So, mom and dad, you know, there's that program in in the U.S. You can go for schools, and can I?" can I apply to that and it was this it was kind of like a joke I, we none of us really expected it to to work out but they were very supportive so I started the program and Amadeus was extremely helpful for me to be able to to do my application process and yeah luckily I got to to my top school at choice uh, to MIT and I started my my degrees from there that's awesome did you know about MIT in specific as an institution before that so was it always kind of 
in your mind or was it out of the colleges that were part of that program the one that caught your attention yeah no I, I definitely knew about it because I've been very interested and passionate in space for a long time and I think when you're interested in this field um, MIT has a great role in terms of a lot of scientific research when it comes to space and when it comes to you know um, um, space missions and relationships to NASA and such so I really thought of MIT as a really good way to be able to transition to some NASA position or to be able to contribute to NASA projects uh, throughout it so that's why in particular I was very interested and really you know hoping to get accepted at MIT when I was applying I also applied to Harvard and other schools but uh, my main I mean Harvard doesn't have aerospace engineering other schools don't have exactly the kind of research that I want so I'm really happy that kind of worked out the way the way it did that's amazing how young were you when you discovered that you have an interest in space how did that even start I feel like in the air world yeah there's not that many resources or it's not part of what we study, you know, in school. I'm curious, when did that start? I don't even remember. I like when I was really, really young, I've been always, you know, you know, interested in knowing, you know, are we alone in the universe? How did this all start out? Like, you know, where are planets and reading things about that? Um, And actually today is really exciting to, to talk about this because today the first woman Arab astronaut got announced by the UAE. And that's such a big step, you know, in the Arab world to have like at least someone to latch on to in terms of female astronauts and people interested in space but yeah it kind of started when I was really young I've always wanted to be an astronaut and be able to be involved in some space mission of some sort kind of got more more and more exciting over time when I started learning more science things and physics related things in school and reading more about it and it kind of became more concrete in my mind in high school when I was applying through the process of applying to the US when uh, I was watching the Curiosity landing on Mars and uh, that you know part of the mission was it was extremely exciting it was the first landing I was watching on a different planet of such a you know incredibly complex project that you know thousands of people have worked on and it just inspired everyone around the world to be able to explore this planet and I saw the director of NASA JPL at the time Dr. Charles Lashi who was you know Lebanese American and that for me was very exciting to be like oh my god there was someone who was you know originally from Lebanon who was leading all this so it kind of gave me you know an, an inspiration I really wanted to be involved in something like this so it was a combination of such events plus my my interest um, um, in becoming an astronaut that kind of drove me to that's amazing. That's wonderful to hear. I love stories when kind of you can't remember how young you were when you just developed such a passion. And you mentioned two things that I actually want to uh, unpack a little bit, maybe. So you mentioned uh, the first Arab female astronaut. I think her name is Nur al-Matrushi, right? Yeah. She was announced earlier today. So we are lucky to to be speaking today, although the episode will come out maybe a week from now. So it'll be a bit of old news. Um, but I know that you were involved in programs like Space for Women and the MIT Graduate Women in Aerospace Engineering, mm-hmm. um, which is very relevant to kind of what we're talking about. Women don't always have a big presence in those fields, in engineering in general, but even in aero, astro in specific. Yeah. Um, can you share a little bit about those programs and your involvement for any aspiring women space engineers that are 
hopefully listening to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, being involved in the space field in general as a woman is really difficult. And specifically being a woman from the Middle East is like kind of a whole different level of difficulty. So you've got the two combinations of the, um, you know, worst things to have basically in the field. Uh, but that being said, one of the things I discovered over the years to really kind of overcome and be able to adapt to this transition, being part of this field, uh, and to really be able to be confident in your skills is to surround yourself by a support network that is similar to you and that can help you in a lot of these transitions. And because it's really hard to find a lot of, you know, women um, are role models in a sense in the aerospace field when it comes to engineering in general and when it comes to space in specific, um, it was really great to be involved in um, a lot of programs that both um, on the engineering side and really because I'm interested in space law and policy on the space law and policy side of things that, you know, involved a network of uh, women professionals and, you know, uh, women um, alumni and even women in the same department that we're working on to kind of organize events together, be able to find opportunities, be able to overcome and speak up for certain um, uh, problems that we're all facing common and certain labs and, and culture things and in, in, in the US or in our departments. So it's really always interesting to have that, um, you know, network of mentorship and network of uh, being able to find opportunities of projects and, and really just talking to someone who was in the situation before and has done something successful in their life. So that has been for me um, uh, really uh, uh, helpful throughout my, uh, my journey and throughout my studies at MIT. So um, it, it's been great. And again, like the Middle East part is not is even harder because you seeing the first, you know, right now woman astronaut from UAE is very exciting because throughout my last seven years at MIT, you know, the number of folks from the area, from any Arab country involved in this field is just minimal because of how um, difficult when it comes to um, a lot of regulations in the US relating to the space structure. So there's a lot of, you know, minority of a minority being part of this field. Yeah, absolutely. I think one, it's it's amazing to see, you know, women empowering other women and, and you having those mentors and then you become a mentor for aspiring um, aerospace engineers. So that is very inspiring to see. And I, I definitely agree. It's the minority of the minority, as you said. It's a perfect way to put it. It's an unfortunate truth. Um and actually, when we talk about the Arab world and the Middle East as it comes to aerospace engineering, I feel like it's already a sensitive topic with a lot of security around it. Um, have you had to deal with that? Have there been any challenging that you challenges, sorry, that you faced um, just because you are Arab and then also an aerospace yeah. engineer? And also a woman, I guess. So you get all three. <laughs> yeah, very lucky to have that mix. Yeah, of course. I mean, that has, to be completely honest, my biggest problem in the US since I came here. Because a lot of people who are in my situation, who start kind of this field, end up transitioning to a different field because of the difficulties and because of how, you know, lack of opportunities, lack of access, and you'd have to change so many regulations before you can able to access a lot of opportunities in that sense but for me i i always because i'm i'm passionate about the space field i didn't want to transition to a different field just because it could give me more access to opportunities and it could have less um uh you know regulations on the us side uh 
so I, I kind of continued with that despite the, the problems. But for sure, part of the reason why I, you know, I, I mean, I'm very interested in my PhD and really passionate about my work, but a PhD option, I didn't even consider going to a job right away because of how difficult being able to work in the US and the aerospace field as an international, as a foreign national, and specifically as a person who is from Lebanon, who is considered one of the uh, restricted or embargoed countries in the US uh, regarding such topics. So even in my own research and over the years and the internships that I've had at NASA and otherwise, you know, you I, I have very limited access to a lot of things. I can't attend most of the meetings. I can't attend, I can't access a lot of the, the data that I need. I won't be able to do a lot of uh, laboratory experiments just because I can't touch pieces of hardware that are specifically, you know, restricted to certain um, uh, nationalities. Um, if I'm on campus of working, you know, and when, when I was working at NASA JPL, I have to be constantly escorted. Um, I can't be on my own at any point. So there, there are a lot of regulations, uh, which is why it got me more interested on in the kind of intersection between the space law and policy and the engineering field because of how intricately you know related um, the the topic of space and aerospace generally is with the politics part and international relations and really the the connections between countries and all that and and how that determines every step of your way in the field wow that's crazy i i knew it was limited and restricted i did not realize to what extent yeah, yeah. but honestly kudos to you for sticking to it despite the challenges and hopefully with the work that you're doing and your passion about policy and regulation you know you can make a dent in in what seems to be a lot of restrictions yeah. for arabs in the field so pretty- I'm, i guess on behalf of the rest of us thank you <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit here. We are talking about culture and restrictions and differences, so I think it's not too much of a shift. I'm curious how the experience of integrating in a new culture was for you when you arrived here in, I think you mentioned 2014, both into the MIT culture and then more broadly in the U.S. culture. Any big lessons learned or advice to people considering that big move? Yeah, so for me, it was a a very interesting transition because when I got to accept the MIT, I was 16, and I had never traveled um, alone or with people. I've never left Lebanon at that point before. Um, so it was my very first time traveling to the U.S. or outside of the country. And I was on my own. We didn't have any family or anyone I know in the U.S. in particular. So it was definitely, so cool. yeah, it was definitely <laughs> a really big move. And my parents were terrified, to be completely honest. Like they were absolutely terrified. I still remember we had an international mentorship program where there was someone who was supposed to meet me at the airport in Boston and take me to my dorm um, and I gave the number of that person to my parents and the moment I got to Boston he told me like are your parents okay like I have more than 100 calls on my phone <laughs> they've called a thousand times yeah. in true era yeah. parent fashion <laughs> to make sure you're okay so it was definitely um, you know a, a challenging time really hard for them but because I, I'm like I'm very grateful to have my parents very supportive and all that um, you know they're worried and all the love that they have but they've been supportive throughout all the way but yeah personally it was a, a big move um, at a young age to do that but to be completely honest I still think about it I'm really grateful that I came here at a young age because 
I think it would have been harder for me to integrate within the culture here if I came here older. And I'm, I think being young, it kind of helped me build my character and my mental models towards a lot of topics, towards a lot of things. How do I approach them? Um, uh, being or doing my undergraduate degree here and coming here at a younger age. So I really enjoyed that part. It gave me a lot more independence um, and gave me a lot of more exposure to, to, to this different culture. But that being said, um, I think there was definitely a lot of, uh, you know, cultural differences that I had to um, get used to uh, that I still am not fully accustomed to up to this moment. Uh, the, the main advice is I think I was very surrounded by a good network of both American and international students. I think having that international mentorship program that happened or MIT has throughout my very first year was very helpful to have a network of uh, people who were like me coming to the U.S., what are the best approaches they had to literally from what uh, you know, mobile company should I get my phone number from to actually how do I um, uh, track my way through MIT? And since, because, because of the importance that this had and my experience at MIT, I kind of uh, committed to being an international student mentor um, and all of my undergraduate degrees afterwards to all the incoming classes of international students because I knew how important and how much of an impact that made um, um, throughout my transition. But in terms of, trans you know, getting accustomed to MIT, itself and the classes and all that um i think i've reached many points at mit throughout my undergrad where i kind of really wanted to drop out and i didn't know if i can continue that it was very it was difficult it was overwhelming i was always used to being the top student and suddenly i everyone around me was super smart was the top student doing way cooler things than than myself and that you know transition of having the imposter syndrome plus what should I do plus did they accept me by mistake or am I actually have to be here um, uh, takes its stalls at many time and many years at MIT and I think at that point having a network of friends around that were really helpful and having a, a really supportive academic advisor were the most important parts for me to be able to really survive it the, and, and get accustomed to how do I deal with these situations, and which is part of the reason, or maybe one of the main reasons I could continue graduate school at MIT after, uh, the, after these difficulties. But I, I really do appreciate MIT's culture and a sense of how collaborative it is, how non-competing people are not, you know, fighting for getting the higher rank or something. People are actually helping each other out. Um, and that made a, a big difference in my experience. Wow. Yeah, that's that I think gives a lot of insight on what the experience looks like. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I think you brought up um, the idea of, you know, you're used to being the top of your class and then you come to MIT and everybody's used to being the top of their class. And, you know, mathematically, 50 percent of us will have to be below exactly. average and 50 percent will be above. Um, I think that's a hard reality that hits really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And not everybody maybe speaks up about it, but I do think everyone experiences it to, experiences it to some degree. Yeah. So I think that's a really good thing to, to surface to, to tell people like that that's a normal feeling to have exactly. and if you do choose to go to MIT or any other institution similar to it you might experience that and that's perfectly okay exactly um what's wild to me though is that you said that you had never left Lebanon before leaving at 16 to come to MIT which the reason I think it's wild is because since I've known you 
I just remember all your summers and all of your IAP, which is January term. Maya was like around the globe. I feel like I made up for the first 16 years of my life. (laughs) No, I was going to say, now it makes sense. You are making up for lost time. That's kind of one of the things I remember the most. And I was wondering if you can share with us a little bit of the on-campus programs that have allowed you to do all these travels. I think it'll be helpful, you know, to, to talk a bit about you know, maybe the programs that you did. I know you traveled a lot, so I'm not going to say share all your stories, yeah. but maybe your favorite two, three stories um, or two, two, three destinations and what you did in, in those countries. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I kind of tried to make up for all that and travel a lot. Uh, I think coming to the US was my first country to explore. And given how much that changed me, I really, it got me excited to explore even more and more countries. So I've, since I started MIT, I've been in love with MISTI. Uh, MISTI is the MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives Program. And basically, they do organize a lot of um, opportunities in different countries. So I organized um, uh, the first robotics program in India. I've worked at Imperial College London. I've organized a couple of entrepreneurship um, um, startup pro- programs in uh, Colombia and in Peru um, and different teaching opportunities around Europe and France and otherwise. So it, it just, it was wonderful to be able to even do multiple programs of these in one summer and just hop from, you know, um, India to California, go from there to Peru, go afterwards to Colombia. These are opportunities I never thought in my wildest dreams, you know, I could get them. And to be completely honest, I think by far that was my favorite experience of MIT, the number of being abroad, abroad um, opportunities. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and in, in South America, yeah, I've, I've done uh, quite a bit of uh, entrepreneurship programs. So that was mostly targeting throughout the global startup labs and global startup workshop programs at MIT. And it gives you even opportunities to participate for some of these people with the MIT like 100K challenge and all that. So it was very exciting to see that a lot of these projects and startup ideas that we worked with people on actually ended up being real startups that are successful and people are, um, you know, um, um, increasing in terms of people involved and, and funding that they have every day. And that for me, seeing the impact in these two programs, I, I really, really enjoyed them. That's amazing. I think what I'm loving the most about this conversation is that your experience at MIT is really showcasing how one can have a very well-rounded and diverse experience. So from aerospace engineering to the global startup labs, to the teaching, to the traveling, um, you really made the best of it. And I think that's such a good approach to take your undergrad years. It is so easy to get just very focused on your classes and on your GPA and forget everything else that's around. But there are opportunities that you are not going to have after you leave the Institute, right? Like people are not going to be funding you to go travel all over the world to, to, you know, work on cool startups. You have to figure it out on your own. Um, Along the lines of cool opportunities at MIT, there's a lot of research opportunities as well. Um, And I, you know, people can publish papers and work on cool projects um, while we're studying. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what your experience was like with on-campus research as an undergrad, probably a little bit in your master's as well, since that's very heavy focused and how it's influenced kind of the work you do today and and the choice to uh, pursue your PhD. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a really uh, great question because 
honestly, I have never done research before coming to MIT um, because, you know, in high schools and all that, we have a, a system of you, you, you learn, you do your exam, and that's about it. You don't delve into a subject and try to work on it in, in further details. And um, starting from my uh, second year of MIT, I think I did actually first year, first summer of MIT, I did my very first Europe. Um, and Europe is um, the undergraduate uh, research opportunities program at MIT. And that for me gave me the first, you know, hands-on experience on how to do research. And I enjoyed it. I really loved it. And I, you know, it, it feels at this point when you, on your resume, you don't have any experiences. And if you're applying for any internships or so, you feel like your resume is lacking any substantial work experience other than your classes. And such opportunities really gave me a lot more skills and a lot more um, things to be confident about in terms of things I know how to do. But at the same time, currently my PhD research is something I, I started in 2016, which is way back in my undergrad. Um, and that was through a program called uh, Super Europe, which is basically a year-long Europe program. Um, and the idea is at that point, you're not just helping another graduate student with their research as an undergrad. You actually have your own independent research topic that you pick with the help of, you know, a faculty advisor and graduate students and such, but it's your own topic and you really pursue it for a year. You publish a paper out of it. You, you do the whole process of research presentations and such. And that for me was very exciting. I learned a lot as an undergrad. I, it prepared me so much to continue and start my application for grad school. And at the same time, it made me realize that I really enjoyed that project that I worked on and I want to continue that and pursue it for a master's and PhD. And it really was one of the ways that I got to know my advisor and the people working on the team, that it was way easier for me to get accepted into that project and grad school because they know me and I've worked with them for a couple of years already. And that, I think, one of the best opportunities that MIT and universities generally in the U.S. do, which is the opportunity to give undergraduate students um, the ability to be able to be involved in a lot of cool, cool projects and get to explore sometimes sample many laboratories, many type of work to know like, I don't know what I'm interested in. Am I, am I interested in coding or, or hardware or something else? So I do like a, a Europe in each in order to, for me to discover which one is something I'm interested to work on before I transition into an internship or a job in that. So I think all of these are such a unique opportunity for undergraduate students to, to, to be part yeah, of. I fully agree. And it's awesome that you get to try it out before you commit to whether it's a master's yeah. or a PhD or a job or whatever it may be. Uh, speaking of internships, you did have a few internships in the industry. So I um, think you were at NASA and then um, at OneWeb and a couple other places. And I'm wondering if you considered going to industry after doing your undergrad or were you always, you know, you knew the plan is going to be undergrad, then master's, then PhD, given that you loved research so much? Or did you think about going to industry and, and what influenced the choice that you made to continue on with your education right away? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, it wasn't an easy option for me to consider going to industry being a foreign national uh, because 
there are so many limited opportunities for you to work. Even if I were able to get in the past opportunities to do internships with NASA JPL and such, right now they change regulations and I can't, you know, redo the opportunities I did because I'm not allowed to access campus anymore for certain new upcoming regulations. For a lot of other opportunities that I enjoy, also US citizenship or green cards or all that are required. So for me, it, to work in the things I'm interested in, I wouldn't have been able to get the opportunity if I were in industry because I wouldn't be able to get the jobs that, that I want and the fields that I want. So for me, academia was a good way of being able to still access these opportunities with certain limitations, but as a PhD student rather than an employee. So I can work on an NASA project, but without being an NASA employee. I could work on that being a PhD student. And that for me was a very unique option why I continued my PhD. Um, and it also kind of, to be honest, you know, a delay of me thinking about what I'm going to do next. It was a great opportunity. It's, it's, I love research. I love my project. It's a good access for the thing I want. Um, it allows me to also explore different tracks of what I'm going to do next. So, um, after my PhD, I'm not sure exactly. I'm, I'm very passionate about space, but I'm not sure what exact track I want to go into. And that for me, doing my PhD and being able to be involved with not just my research, doing a lot of different things on the side, helps me to kind of navigate through that and experience a lot of things, network and meet with a lot of um, you know, current and new students and alumni and faculty um, to really navigate that easier. Because once you're stuck in, in industry, sometimes it's harder to meet these new people, find these new opportunities, get involved in projects. And I think I wanted that um, a few years of that as well before I transition later on to industry in the aerospace field. Yeah, that makes sense. It's again, making the best of the, the resources that you have and having the unique opportunity to Kind of do what you do and what you're interested yeah. in without necessarily having to deal with the obstacles that are by no means something that you get to choose, exactly. right? It's one of the most unfair things. None of us choose our nationality or ethnicity or passport, um, but we have to, to I yeah, guess, pay our dues to, to, depending on what the restrictions are. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm really happy to hear that you've been able to pursue opportunities creatively and and find academia as the path to to get to hopefully what the dream job or position is in the future. Um, how different is MIT undergrad life from grad life? <laughs> oh yeah, I it's very different. Uh, to be completely honest, undergrad was harder, and I don't know if it was harder because. I transitioned from Lebanon and by the time I'm in grad school, I already got used to the undergrad life or like how to navigate MIT. So there might be a bias there, but undergrad was really difficult. I mean, the number of classes you're taking per semester, the number of things you're doing, sometimes looking back at now, like if I'm taking three classes now, I'm like, oh my God, I can't do that with research. And looking back of how many classes we were taking per semester and doing other things with them, and really still trying to socialize and see friends. I have no idea how he managed. And for me, it was harder as an undergrad. And it helped me a lot to have that experience before going to grad school. But one of the other things is I, I think I'm enjoying my grad school experience a lot more. Partly because I know how to navigate things more around. I think um, my network right now is surrounded by people I really enjoy. I think as an undergrad, I didn't or like my my group or circle of friends was limited in a way to being mostly either just internationals or uh, or just people who 
helped me navigate transitioning to a new country rather than also experiencing different, you know, aspects of different countries or different, um, or people in my major really, um, so for me as a grad student, I were able to, I was able to, um, integrate myself within different circles of, of friends. And I'm enjoying that quite a bit. So both of them are different, but unique experiences, um, but really different. And the type of people around you, you know, you always think of MIT students as the, the, you know, nerdy, all that MIT, um, um, students that are stuck into studying and all that. But, I think the type of people I've met in undergrad and grad school were also very different because a lot of, you know, people who are grad school here did their undergrads in different locations. So they have a really different perspectives on things and they have a different um, um, uh, uh, way of dealing with school or like having fun or like hanging out as friends. So it, it, it was a different perspective and I enjoyed having both, but I think I'm preferring a bit the grad school life. That's interesting. I'm always curious, actually. Sometimes I think back and I want to experience MIT as a grad student. So I'm glad I, I get to to get the, the insider view from, yeah, from you different. and other folks on the podcast. Yeah. I think it's nice to have your own schedule, though. Like with the research, true, it's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not the same as having like classes and it's, you know, specific time and the recitations and the P sets. It's not the same. Yeah. People trust you that uh, you know what you're doing, even though. That's uh, great. Um so I know this episode is focused on your time at MIT and, and we want to share the MIT experience, but we cannot not talk about the MOTSI project. So I will have to bring it up. So I would love if you give us kind of the elevator pitch, just a summary of what the project is. And um, it's been really exciting, especially in the last few months. Yeah. So just Give us the TLDR on that. Of course. Um, so Moxie is a near and dear project to my heart. Been working on it for the last four years and going. Um, and it's currently one of the instruments that is aboard or on the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover that is on the surface of Mars. So uh, MOXIE itself stands for Mars Oxygen ISRU Experiment. And the idea behind it is... You, it is kind of the first step to pre prepare for future human exploration of Mars. Um, and in order to do that, uh, MOXIE helps in creating for the first time oxygen on the surface of Mars from Martian resources instead of carrying oxygen with us from Earth to Mars. And the reason why this oxygen is important is if we're going to be sending astronauts later on to Mars, and we're sending humans and all that, those people need to need oxygen to be able to breathe. But we also need oxygen to be used as part of the rocket propellant to take them off the surface of Mars and be able to get them back to Earth. And sending this oxygen from Earth up there is extremely uh, you know, expensive, especially for human missions. So from here, this is the first time to prove being able to do this process from the, the resources that we have on Mars instead of carrying everything with us from Earth. So it's been extremely exciting. We landed um, in, in February 18th. Uh, given everything that was going on this year, I was, you know, scared so much watching the launch and landing because everything was going on, you know, going wrong around the world. And I was like, oh no, I don't want something going wrong within this mission. But yeah, thankfully we were able to make it, make it safely um, um, and launch and landing. And we're really excited for all of our upcoming runs and, um, and upcoming data that we're getting from the surface of Mars. That is so cool. That is 
incredibly cool. And in a way, honestly, it's so stressful that it happened during the pandemic. And but in in some way, it's comforting. Like while while the world is all going to shambles, at least we're trying to find our way to get out. <laughs> just in case, Plan B is is uh, ready, and Maya is helping us get there. <laughs> um, great. So a couple more things before we we wrap up here. When you imagine your next decade, what do you see, if anything? It doesn't have to be very specific, but maybe where you are geographically, what you're working on. I don't know what project you want to be on. Do you have any idea? This is kind of my existential crisis question happening right now. Currently, I'm also working on leading a lot of, as I mentioned, you know, space law and policy work and projects beside my engineering work. So this will give me a bit more flexibility when I finish my PhD to know if I want to go into the full engineering track or into the space law policy track or in a combination, uh, most probably of both tracks and, and, and a certain um, kind of job. So I genuinely don't know where that job is going to be or that track is going to be. I think given how the, the one thing that I learned from this last year is that sometimes it's not worth planning that far ahead because things could change so much in one year that really change up all your plans going forward. So I'm trying to basically um, um, uh, throw dots around and maybe one day they will connect somehow to the, the plan I want later on. Um, and I don't think about things as, you know, permanent in a way. That's why I'm kind of trying to be flexible and making myself get exposed to a lot of different areas of work to help me find the best intersection of all of these later on. So as I mentioned, my ultimate dream is to become an astronaut at some point. But until then, I'm going to try to um, stay involved in the space field in a way that integrates my interest in engineering and also my interest in space law and policy in a way, whether that took place in the US or otherwise, um, that that I, I don't know. <laughs> the way you speak about uh, flexibility and adaptability for change, I'm like, yep, that's why she's a great engineer. <laughs> <laughs> um, my wrap up question here is, so Lebanon is going through a really hard time yeah. um, in the past few months, even more than months, really. And hope, I feel like, is essential for perseverance and resilience in these circumstances. So what advice or message do you have for, you know, young Lebanese youth students who are ready to embark on their college journeys, whether they're staying or coming to MIT or applying anywhere in the US in Europe, it doesn't matter, just kind of general Maya advice to them? Yeah, it's um, honestly, the situation this year has been just one of the most stressful and um, uh, really just, it's a shame to see everything going on. I last was there a couple of years ago and every, everything changed since then, uh, to be to be honest. So I think the main thing I would say is if someone is interested in something, to continue working on it and applying for opportunities and programs. Because sometimes, even though it seems at this point in time, things are horrible and they will never be better and you know that tomorrow they might be worse, things are not constant and you never know when it takes one opportunity. It literally sometimes takes one, one program or one person you meet or talk to that could change, you know, the path of what you're doing forever. Um, at least in my experience, that was the program I applied in Amidis. And sometimes literally that one day changes everything you're planning. So uh, my main advice, even though if it seems super hopeless at the moment, and I know how I can't even imagine how stressful it would be to be part of that. And a lot of people have not been even able to finish their degrees because of the financial pro uh, problems and because of the economic situation and because of the safety um, really issues all around. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, helpful to think that this is temporary and 
it might it might get worse but it might get better later on maybe not for the entire country but maybe for the person maybe an opportunity would come up but the only way to get there is to really keep trying and keep applying for options and opportunities and talking to people until you find somehow a way to manage out of it but one thing that this situation is really despite all of the 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 worst you know amount of possibilities being part of it is it kind of helps you to to learn how to persevere throughout such um, a situation because if you've survived that you could survive a lot of other things that you're going to pass through later on in life so it could have its its, its positive side to look at it uh, despite all the negativity but um, um yeah it's it's just really a shame to see the country transforming this way yeah it, it is a shame and it is unfortunate but i think you said it so well you know, there's silver lining in, in everything that we go through. And it, it just takes one person, one program, you know, one article to you read um, to change the the outlook. So I guess for all those listening, keep an eye out for those opportunities, those people, those programs. Yeah. Um, give it a try and see where it goes. But Maya, that is the end of our episode. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for sharing a lot of your MIT experience. And... Hopefully we'll hear from you again in the near future. I still have so many questions about you. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun to, to talk about all that. And it was really fun to catch up with you again, Adrian. Hopefully to catch up with you in person. As always, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, we'll have an episode coming out every week. We'll continue to uh, have current students and recent graduates as part of our Pi series talking about their experiences at and shortly after MIT. 